Well, if you have your Bible with you, let me see here. There we go. If you have your Bible with you, please take it and turn in it to Romans chapter 6. We'll be in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, as we continue from where we left off last Sunday, as we're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and in that Bible, it's on page 943. And if you don't have a Bible at all for yourself, then take that one home. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. Let's read together from these verses, Romans 9, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amazing. I want to know uh, what, what you think. What, what do you think is more important, our doctrine or our actions? The things that we believe or the things that we do? And I want you to ask yourself that honestly. In, in your own heart, how do you regard those things? Sometimes people regard doctrine as uh, important to the exclusion of their actions. And I have to tell you, if that's the case, you need to know that uh, Satan is a pretty good theologian. He knows the truth very, very well, but what he disagrees with is that it should make any difference in your life. So we need to not only know the truth, but to act on it. But maybe, on the other hand, you would just absolutely nod at that, you jump up and down, yeah, you tell them, Pastor, all these, all these people who have all their doctrines straight but don't apply it, uh, we need to be all about the application and the things that we do. Maybe that's you, but you need to realize that the application is just that. It has to be the truth applied to our lives, not just our idea that we would come up with on our own of how should we live, how should we be good people, how should we do these things. No, what we have in verse 12 is a therefore. We have the word therefore. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What is it saying? What's the basis of that? Well, it's the verses that we were in last week where he talked about the fact that the death that Jesus died He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so us who are united to Christ, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 5, he spent a long section, the second half of that chapter, talking about how every human being is born dead in sin in Adam, with the one exception of the virgin-born Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that We need to be brought from united to Adam in death and sin to united to Christ in life and in righteousness, his righteousness applied to us. We need a new head. But one of the things that does when we realize we've been brought from death to life is it's life-changing. Another way to put it, and we put it this way a couple of weeks ago, is that we need not just to be content with the fact that we have been justified, we also, as people who have been justified, who've been declared forgiven of our sins and righteous in God's sight, we need to be sanctified, which is saying, yes, believer, you are forgiven from the moment you believe. You have eternal life. It's not going away. And now that you have eternal life, live as a person who is alive to God. Don't live in those old, dead 
body, dead Adam, sinful ways, but live alive to God. That's what this is talking about. That, so that's the therefore, is these two things can't be disconnected. The way that James puts it, and you know this verse, it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You hear that? You must be a hearer of the word before you can do it. But being a really, really good hearer of the word, even being so good of a hearer of the word that you can write blog articles and books about the word is not the same thing as then taking it and applying it and being a doer of the word. And so believer who knows these things, who has heard the word, who believes the gospel, now be not a hearer only, but be a doer. Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Sometimes people get uh, the idea of spiritual uh, maturity mixed up with spiritual knowledge. Spiritual knowledge is necessary to spiritual maturity. If you don't know anything, you're not spiritually mature. If you don't know your Bible well, if, if you don't, maybe you have read your Bible through, but you don't have any idea the way that the Holy Spirit has been working and, and leading people to bring out the depths of that Bible in doctrinal form over the course of, of church history. You don't, you don't know what these things mean. Well, you're, you're not spiritually mature. That's true. But at the same time, the way that the Bible defines spiritual maturity is not you are able to list out all of the views of supra and sub and lapsarianism and all of those kinds of things. It, it's this, Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for the mature. Here's who the mature are. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Another way to put that is here's what spiritual maturity looks like. You are no longer letting sin reign in your mortal body to obey it's passions. You're taking what you know of Christ and not just sitting on it, but letting it be played out in your life, actively playing it out, not just passively letting it be played out, but killing sin and living to God. So that's what this is about, is that we need to not just consider that those truths are true, but now we need to actually do something. We need to take the truth of being united to Christ and live alive to Christ. So the first thing, if you're following along on the back of the bulletin, there's three points, very Baptist of me, three points. The first one is from verse 12, rebel against sin's tyranny. Rebel against sin's tyranny. It says in the first half of verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What does reign mean? Well, reign means rule. Reign means have dominion. And what is your mortal body? Well, that's the thing, this piece of meat that we're all sitting in right now. This is your body that you are living your life in. And, and when you were born again, you didn't get a new body yet. Someday you will, believer. You will get a resurrection body just like Jesus did, which is not actually a totally different body, but the same body transformed, right? And, and when we are in that state, and even before that state, if you die before the, the day of resurrection and you depart this body and you go to be present with Jesus, when, when you are no longer in this mortal form of your flesh, you are no longer going to have the presence of sin. But for now, you are in it, and you do have it. 
I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And from the moment that you first believe, the full penalty of sin is completely gone forever. And from the moment that you first believe, the power of sin is no longer binding on you. That's what this verse is going to be about. But you need to know, believer, and I think this is what it's talking about in large part when it uses that word mortal body, that the presence of sin is still here. You will not be rid of the presence of sin as long as you are in this mortal body. But the presence of it doesn't mean that it has to have power over you. All right? And it says right here, here's what you, you need to do, is you need to actively put it to death. Don't let it reign over your mortal body. You, you have sin present. In fact, if you would say to yourself, if you would object to that and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand, Pastor. You don't understand because I had a second experience of grace. I had this amazing experience where after that, I don't sin anymore. There are branches of Christianity that teach that. And maybe you've been around that before. Um, or, or maybe you say, well, I had a, a great experience where I just, I completely let go and now I let God. And now there's no longer any sin in my life. Well, 1 John 1.8 says you're a liar. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I guess maybe liars putting it a little harshly because it's saying, well, you don't, maybe you're not meaning to lie, but you're self-deceived if you think that the presence of sin is gone while you're still in this mortal body. It's not. It's not. And you need to ask God to search your heart and try you and to see if there's any wicked way in you and to lead you in the way that's everlasting. That's what you need to do. But we also have this hope that's coming. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three. this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's coming for us. That's coming. But the fact that we have sin still present in this mortal body, as I said, it doesn't mean that it has to have power over us. What it says in verse 12 is, let not sin therefore reign. This is an imperative. This is a something needs to be done here. The way that it's stated is actually almost like it's a command to sin. Sin, don't reign in your mortal body. But it's obviously a command to us to say we, as believers, need to look at sin and say, you are no longer my Lord. You no longer reign over me. We have to take the command that God gave to Cain after Cain had murdered Abel, and we need to let this sink in. Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Don't let sin reign. You must rule over it. Sin wants to rule over you, but here's something that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm talking to believers here, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who know what it says in the Bible, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, you, spirit-indwelt believer, have the opportunity to revolt against sin's reign in your life. It wants to be your Lord, and you are called here in this verse to be a rebel against it. Now, the world loves the idea of being a rebel, doesn't it? 
It's so, seems, you know, it's like so cool. Everybody wants to be a rebel. And they're kind of right that it is pretty cool to be a rebel. But the way that the world does rebellion is boring. It is so cliche. It is so predictable. It is so boring. The way that the world does rebellion, going deep into sin, deep against the authorities that God has established, especially to the authority of God himself, diving headlong into these things, trying to shock everybody with sin, it's not shocking. It's not bold. It's not courageous. It's boring, and it's cowardly, and it's normal. It's not rebellion at all. It's standard. It is standard issue human. That's rebellion against God. It is not nonconformity. It is conformity to the world. It is blind obedience to the authoritarian dictatorship that is sin. And everybody does it, and everybody thinks it's cool, and it is so boring. But what this verse in the Bible calls you to rebel against is not against God, but against the lust of the flesh. Guys, that is real rebellion. That is real nonconformity. You think to yourself, well, I'm going to be so courageous by standing up for sin. I'm going to stand out so much. Everybody does that. Guys, the real courage is saying, I am going to fight sin in my own body and life. I am going to stand for the truth of God. I am going to submit myself joyfully under the authority of my Creator and not rebel against God, not rebel against society by conforming to society, but rebel against sin. That's not normal. That's the thing that's actually shocking. That's the thing that is courageous in the middle of a bland world with a wide path that's so easy. So, what does sin want to make us do? In verse 12, it makes us, it, it, what it wants to make us do is to obey its passions. When it says it, I think it's talking there about the mortal body. What sin wants to do, and of course sin is not a person, sin is not a spirit floating around there, but it's, it, it, it's personified here because it's this force, this power that we're familiar with to make you obey the passions, the desires, the lusts of the mortal body. The lusts of the flesh is another way to put that. Now, while we are still in the mortal body, we still have fleshly desires. Did you know that? Sometimes when people come to faith in Jesus and they get really, really excited about Jesus and then a few months later they realize that they still have fleshly desires, sometimes this causes people to doubt their salvation. They think to themselves, well, if I was really saved, then God would have delivered me from blank meaning that fleshly desire that I felt before I was a Christian and that I still feel now. I want to tell you guys, that's normal. It is normal that even though you have been born again and given a new heart, that you still feel a lot of the same fleshly desires that you felt before you came to Christ. And you know what the reason is? It's because you're still in the same mortal body. It makes total sense. Don't let that make you doubt your salvation. 
But at the same time, don't go the way that some people have gone, which is absolutely shipwrecking to their faith, which is to say, well, if God hasn't taken this desire away from me, then it must be God-given. And therefore, I must put a flag on my house and have a parade of pride going down the street for this desire of the flesh because it has stuck with me. And it's just part of who I am. No, this says, don't let it rain. What, the, what, the, the, what sin wants to do in your mortal body is to take those fleshly desires and those passions and to make you obey them. And boy, Satan throws a party when people celebrate the lusts of their flesh as though they were just part of their identity, just part of, of who I am to be celebrated. No, absolutely not. This is something where we say, yes, it is still with me. I still feel the tug of the flesh. And yet, God is gracious. God has made it so that even though that temptation still presents itself to me on a regular basis, that I do not have to let it rule over me. It is not my identity. Christ is my identity. It is not my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. I do not have to obey what my flesh says it wants to do because I now am free in Christ to obey God. That's real rebellion right there. That's saying, yes, I still feel the desires of my flesh, but God has said, don't let it rain. Don't obey its passions. Don't do that. That's what it wants to do, but rebel against it. That sin reigning in your body and that that obeying your fleshly passions, that's standard Adam stuff. That is standard issue, human. We have come with a sin nature built in. It's normal. But that's also called, as Jesus said, the wide path. It's the way that's broad. It's the way that's easy that leads to destruction. But we, in Christ, we don't have our flesh is the Lord over us anymore. So I want you to know, believer, whatever struggle it is, and I hope it is legitimately a struggle, meaning you are killing it, and not just that you're disobeying and calling it a struggle. I hope that whatever it is where you feel those fleshly desires, I hope that you realize, that's not my Lord anymore. I'm free. I am free not to do what I want to do. Because I have Christ, who is a sweeter and better Lord to serve than my flesh. Now, I say that to believers, to unbelievers, I have to say, and I quoted this last week, I'm going to do it again, Doug Moo, New Testament scholar, he said, one may as well tell a drowning person simply to swim to shore as to tell a person who is under sin's mastery not to let sin reign. If you are not united to Christ, if you have not been born again, if you have not given yourself over to him in faith to trust in him alone for your salvation, whatever sort of fighting the flesh you want to engage in is pointless. It's hopeless. Now, I'm not going to say, like, well, I wish that... uh, I'm not going to say that somebody who doesn't believe and yet has overcome their alcoholism, I'm not going to say, well, there's no point in that. You, sh- you might as well have not have done it. That- that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that apart from knowing Christ, even those things like that, 
Even those things like cleaning up something that's obviously wrong in your life, even those things like self-discipline to get yourself out of bed, to, to exercise in the morning, get to work early, and to, to serve at a soup kitchen, all of those kinds of things. If you're not united to Christ, ultimately what the Bible says is that those things are still sin. And they are still serving the flesh in one way or another. And there may be some sort of an outward conformity to doing something good, but there's an inward draw to glorify the self, to glorify the flesh, to rebel against God, to use even those things that seem good in rebellion against God instead of rebellion against the flesh. Where am I getting that? Well, one place is Romans 14, 23. Whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So whatever's not proceeding from faith, explicit faith in Jesus Christ, is still in some way or another, for the gratification of some other fleshly desire. You need to know that you must come to faith in Jesus. You cannot obey Romans 6.12 apart from faith in Jesus. And whatever way you pretend to obey it is going to be in service to the flesh and not in service to God. You need a better desire. You know what's going to drive out fleshly desires? It's not going to be the determination of your will to say, I'm just not going to fulfill thy desire. That will fail, and it'll fail over and over. And you'll leave church today, and you'll say, well, the Bible said, don't let sin therefore reign when you have these passions and these fleshly desires. Well, don't obey them. And just if you go out just in that mindset, I'm just not going to obey it, might work for a little bit, but it's not going to work long term because you know what you want to do? Disobey it. You're you're going to be driven by your desires one way or another. What you need is a greater, better desire than the desires of the flesh. You need, as, as one theologian put it a long time ago, you need the expulsive power of a, a greater desire. If you want to see that sin driven out, if you want to see that desire overcome, You need to set your heart on Christ as your desire, as your treasure. Until you do that, you you may have all kinds of determination of your will to obey verse 12, but it's not going to be lasting. Here's what it says in Matthew 13, verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You hear that? Knowing God is worth more than everything you have. And you need to know that. And you need to drive that home to your own soul and preach that to yourself and be satisfied in God. Because if you're not, then the desires of your flesh are going to fool you over and over and over into thinking that's where your real satisfaction is going to come from. Another way that it's put in Philippians 3, Paul had just talked about how he had done all kinds of seemingly good works, seemingly religious things, that he had gone through all kinds of religious training that he was rising high as a religious leader, this rising star in his religion. And do you know what those things were? They were called dead works. 
because he was not doing it by faith in Jesus. He was doing it in rebellion against the risen Jesus. And so he says about all of those things, not about drunkenness or sexual immorality or all of those things that we would normally call the desires of the flesh. He says about his religious actions that he did apart from faith in Christ. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You hear that? So the reason I'm I'm telling you those things is because there are these passions, there are these desires that are real, and you must know that Christ is better. You must know that he is the one who is worth throwing away all that other stuff because you're going to gain Christ. Hmm. Believer, I want to know this. Are you struggling with sin? In a way, I know that the answer is yes. Because you're still in the mortal body. There's still the presence of sin. But I want to ask you this too, because sometimes when well-meaning believers talk to each other um, and they confess their sin to each other, sometimes they'll say something like, pray for me because I'm struggling with blank. And what they mean by struggling is not struggling in the way that the Bible talks about struggling. The way that the Bible talks about struggling is in Hebrews 12, where it says that you have, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood like Jesus did. Are you struggling like that? Or by struggling, do you mean the temptation arose and you disobeyed God? That's not struggling. That's just disobeying. So don't call it struggling if you're just disobeying. But what we're called to do in the Bible, in the Scripture, is this, is to kill our sin. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Maybe when you confess your sin to your brother who's helping you through uh, you know, a situation of accountability, something like that, instead of saying, I'm struggling with this, you need to say, I fell this week. Or I was disobedient to God this week. And I want, I'm here because <laughs> this is my struggle to open my mouth to confess it to you, brother, so that you can help me out of it. And not just say, yeah, I fell too. And let's fall together next week too. No, let's kill this sin. Let's kill this sin. Uh, John Owen said in his great book, The Mortification of Sin, famous quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to kill your sin. We have the power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in verse 14. But there's another command in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you need to rebel against sin's tyranny. And now, here in verse 13, you need to hand yourself over to God. Hand yourself over to God. The first thing that it says that you should not do, that we would be tempted to do, is to present your members uh, to sin. 
as instruments for unrighteousness. What, what does it mean when it says your members? Well, it could, uh, that could mean just sort of all of your natural abilities, everything about yourself and what it is that you're able to do. But he really uses kind of a, a blunt term here when he says members. He's, he's saying body parts. He's saying, yeah, you're in this mortal body and look down. You, you got, you know, this, this meat suit that we're all wearing, right? He says, take it and present it not to sin. The temptation is to say, yeah, I have this. What can I get away with in this? How can I fulfill the desires of this? How can, but he says when you do that, when you go into sin, you're taking yourself and you are handing yourself over to sin. And you're handing your body and your abilities and even your body parts over to the power of sin as its weapons, as its tools to accomplish its purposes. What are we supposed to do instead of presenting ourselves to sin? It says in the middle of that verse, but present yourselves to God. Not to sin, but to God. And present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You were dead in Adam. Believer, you've been brought out of death. You've been brought to life. This is what he said in the whole uh, chapter 6 leading up to this. is, is just this whole idea. Jesus died on the cross for you who believe and for all who will ever believe. The reason that they believe is because he died for them in the first place. And when he died, he actually took you with him. He died for your sins. He got up out of the grave for you to give you a new life. And then the Holy Spirit came in time in your life and took what Jesus had accomplished in his death and burial and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit applied it to you. And that's the moment that you believed. And that moment that you believe, every bit of that was applied to you. Your old self is dead. Your new self is alive. Your old heart of stone is taken out. Your, your new heart of flesh is put in. You are no longer alive to sin. You're dead to sin. And you're no longer dead to God. You're alive to God. And so the command here in verse 13 is now, rather than presenting yourself to sin, present yourself alive to God. Present yourself to God. I want to know, who, who do you present yourself to? Who, who is it in your religious doings, who, who is it that you want to see you? According to this, and according to a whole lot of the rest of the scriptures, it needs to be God. It needs to be God, not man. And that's not to say that other people don't have anything to do with your responsibility to live for God. Otherwise, there wouldn't be such a thing as a church that Jesus had established and said that he will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus loves the church. He, he put it here so that we can see the fruit in each other's lives and build each other up and hold each other accountable. But you know who you need to present yourself to, first and foremost, is to God. You need to realize... You just, just think of all the people around you and just for a second, let the, let the lights of your mind just fade and realize that there is you and there is God. And no matter what else anybody around you thinks, and no matter what you think about yourself, God is the one who sees you and knows you. He knows you so much better than you know yourself. 
which in itself is much better than the people around you know you. Maybe you've been going about your life in such a way as to make people think that you are a follower of God. That's called being a hypocrite. Maybe you've been presenting yourself in a way where you can just be satisfied about yourself that you've checked off enough marks, but it says here, present yourself to God. You know, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that point, what's it going to matter what you thought about yourself? What's it going to matter what anybody else thought of you? You need to believe in the Lord Jesus And you need to come to God and present yourself alive to God. Now that's a general principle. That needs to be a general mindset throughout our lives is that we need to be living before God first and foremost. Fearing God and not fearing man. And it also needs to be something that plays out in real things that we do on a daily basis in our lives. And I just want to say this, the main time where you're going to get focused on this in your daily life is in your daily private prayer closet devotional time. You need to have daily time with just you and the Lord. Yes, families, you need to have your family devotions too. And yes, you you need to be at church. That's part of God's means of grace is to be here under the preaching of the word and building each other up and encouraging each other. Yes, but guys, you need to present yourself alive to God. And the number one way that that's going to happen is when you block off time in your actual schedule. And maybe it's going to mean a little less sleep and that's okay. Where you will be alone with God in his word And in prayer, you need to present yourself alive to God. I I don't know how many times I've had this conversation. There'll probably be, I think I've had this conversation at least twice this week. As I say this, some of you will think, well, he's picking on me. We had that conversation. I'm picking on a lot of you. It's just so predictable when when a church member would come and talk to me and say, well, you know, I just, I don't feel like I'm walking close to God right now. Or I just don't feel like things are coming together for me spiritually in my life. One of the things I'll ask is, well, how are your devotion times going? What are you reading in the Bible right now? And almost inevitably, when the conversation has started at the point of, I just don't know where my spiritual life is right now, almost inevitably, the answer is going to be, well, uh, uh, uh. I think I read a Bible verse yesterday. Or, uh, uh, we've been having family devotions. Or, uh, uh, I've been listening to sermons on my way back and forth from work on my commute. As there is nothing, nothing that replaces just private, devoted time between you and the Lord, where you are presenting yourself alive to God. I know that's not the only thing that that phrase in this verse means, but it certainly isn't less than that. Jesus said over and over that we need to serve God in private. We need to give alms in private. We we need to fast in private. We need to pray in private. And he says three different times in Matthew 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Guys, present yourself alive to God, to God first and foremost, but don't present yourself to sin. 
He comes back around in the end of verse 13 and picks up the same thought he had at the beginning of verse 13, and he says, instead of presenting yourself to, as instruments for unrighteousness, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Come out of the prayer closet and live for God. Take your, your, the, the parts of your mortal body and all of your physical abilities and natural abilities and present them as instruments, as weapons in the spiritual warfare for God, for God. Do you know that feeling you have when you have a job to do in your house and you have all the tools already? It's, it's just such a great feeling. A couple weeks ago, um, our oldest boys, Isaac and Ben, have bunk beds, and I was standing, Isaac's on the bottom bunk, I was standing on his bunk to say goodnight to Ben on the top bunk, and suddenly, just bang, and uh, the bed went down. <laughs> it's, because, it's because of my weight. Um, so this corner of the bed was completely broken, Isaac had to like turn around, figure out a way to sleep for the night. I'm sorry about that, Isaac. Um, and then eventually, uh, I got around to fixing it. And, but when I did, I, I had this great feeling. I looked around the garage. I found the perfect piece of scrap wood. And then I, I looked in my toolbox, and I found the f- perfect size of screws. And then I went over, and I had the circular saw that I needed that's been sitting in there for years. I had, uh, I had, the, um, I had this vice grip that I had just bought at a garage sale. And I was like, this is perfect. And it just all came together, and it just worked. And I got the bed fixed. And I said, this is incredible. I did not have to go to Home Depot. I just had it. It was right there. I could just do it. That feeling is so satisfying. And this says right here, believer, you have what you need for righteousness. It says, take your members as the tools that you already have, Take yourself and present yourself to God as instruments, as tools for righteousness. For righteousness. Here's what it says in 2 Peter 1.3, just describing this. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. Hear that? Believer, you already have everything needed for life and godliness. You're already counted as righteous in God's sight, and he's given you everything that you need to live righteously. You have this body that you're in, this body of death, but he's also given you the whole armor of God that you can put on and that you can walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, not bearing fruit for death, but bearing fruit of the spirit of life for God. And so with what he's given us, we can do this. We can do what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You can. Or, as he's going to say later in Romans, verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Take those body parts, those members, those abilities, what God has given you together with all of the the gifts and the strength of the Holy Spirit and all that he would arm us with in the whole armor of God 
and live to God in righteousness. That's what he's saying here. After he says in Ephesians, he talks about how believers have been brought from death to life, just like he talks about here. And in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He hasn't brought you from death to life just so you can sit around and say, I guess I'm counted as alive, and go on in your sin. No, that's not what someone who is alive to God looks like. He has recreated us for good works. And this is saying, do them. Do them. Be proactive. Don't just sit around thinking to yourself, well, I guess I'm just going to grow in holiness. I'm going to be sanctified just by osmosis. Just because I went to church and I heard a good sermon, I'm going to get holier now. I don't, whatever church that was, you heard that sermon at. What you need to do is you need to say, well, I have to do actual things in my life. I need to be about good works. I need to be about obedience to God. Especially as you're in that time in the Word, on the daily basis, seeing what the Word says to do. It's going to give you the law to follow, and the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to do what God says. And you can do it. Now, some of you think to yourself, well, that sounds like a really, really big task. I hope you probably think that to yourself. If you think, well, that's nothing, then there's probably some other problems we need to address. Have you ever heard of broken windows policing? This was the, the kind of policing that, uh, uh, that came into New York City back in the 90s under Rudy Giuliani. They call it broken windows policing because the idea is that rather than starting with these big overarching problems like how do we solve the murder rate, that you just look around at what's going on in the community and you see where there are lots of little crimes and you start tackling those and you go from there. You look at where the windows are broken, where there's vandalism, and you start making arrests of these small crimes, and then it goes into bigger and bigger things and solves bigger problems as you go. Sometimes this is the way that you need to go about your life, is, is, is you're just overwhelmed. How am I going to present my members for righteousness? How am, going to, how am I going to live in holiness? That's a massive task. Well, start with the little things that are obvious. Start with those obvious broken windows where, where you can say, boy, God has said pretty clearly that I need to pray for those who persecute me, and I'm, I'm not doing that, so maybe I should just do that. I'll start there. Or, you know, God has said that I need to bless those who curse me, and I, I for some reason, I've thought that that doesn't apply in my own house. But it does, so I'm going to try to find a way to bless my family members that I live with, even though they treat me like dirt. Just, just these little obvious things. Or you, you could say, well, I know that I need to get up and spend time with the Lord. <laughs> I, 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 when, I, when I opened up my Bible, I, I saw that, boy, I, I need to speak truthfully. Uh, you know, I, I need to stop cheating on my timesheet at work. I mean, just little things that are obvious. Start with those things and develop those habits of holiness, and you're going to see it grow. You're going to see it grow. But that's, that's always where to start, is what God has already told you. The, even the commitments that you've already made, commitment to be faithful in your marriage, the commitment to be a faithful church member, 
the commitment to do your job with integrity, these kinds of things, as we present ourselves to God in righteousness, he's going to grow us in holiness. And he's going to do it by the power of the Spirit. A believer, I want to assure you in this. I want to assure you that you will not live under the dominion of sin. At least not on an ongoing basis. If you've backslidden, you're going to come out of it. If you haven't, you don't have to backslide. You know how I know this? Because of verse 14. Verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you were not under law, but under grace. You hear that? If you think to yourself, well, I've been dealing with sin in my life for so many years that I just don't think that it's ever going to be overcome. Um, Verse 14 says that's not true. Sin will have no dominion over you. You think to yourself, well, I just can't escape this cycle of sin. No, it's not your Lord. Just tell it that it's not your Lord. And look at this and see what it says. This is the truth of God's word. Believer, if you're united to Christ, sin will have no dominion over you. And what's the reason? Is the reason because you're going to do such a great job at it? No, the reason is because you are not under law but under grace. Because God gives you grace, you will not be under the lordship the domination, the authoritarian rule of sin. That almost sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why why would it be that you won't be under the dominion of sin if you're under grace? Doesn't grace sound like, well, you can just do whatever you want to and you just get forgiven for it? Well, that goes back to the question in in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And it's great that as we come to verse 14, he actually says it's the opposite that's true. We don't live in sin because we have grace. It's because of grace that we can depart from sin and say that in God's grace, sin has no authority over me any longer. Sin's power is not my Lord. And I can be assured that I will have victory over sin. Guys, believer... Sin will not rule over you. It wants to be your Lord, but it's not your Lord, and it won't be your Lord. And the reason is because of Jesus. This is what the angel announced when Jesus came, when Jesus was about to be born. Matthew 121, you will call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you think Jesus saving his people from their sins is just about forgiving their sins... Well, that is part of it. But he's also saying he will rescue you out of them. He will not only forgive you, 1 John 1, 9, but he will also cleanse you of all unrighteousness, also 1 John 1, 9. He will deliver you. He will save his people, whatever you want to be saved from. He says, there's what you need to be saved from, your sins, and he will do it. He said in John eight thirty six, if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. Isn't that good to know? You think to yourself, no, sin has dominion over me. I'm trapped. No, it doesn't. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not just forgiven, but also escaped from the lordship and the power of sin that you think has a grip over you. 
He says it's because we're not under law, but under grace. Wow. Now, what does he mean? I just want you to think about this for a second. What does he mean? He says, sin, you are not under law, but under grace. Does he mean that once you trust in Jesus that there's no rules anymore? Well, that can't be the case because he just said rules. He just said a rule, which is do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. And then there's another rule, which says present yourself to God. And then there's another rule, uh, let not sin therefore reign. I mean, there's rules here. So they can't possibly be what it means when it says you're not under law, that there's no rules for the Christian. Well, God has eternal, righteous, moral standards. We, we don't come to Christ and say, okay, now I, I don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore. I can commit adultery. I don't have to have the, the Lord as my only God. I can get all kinds of other gods. I can No, that, that is just ridiculous. So when it says we're not under law, it doesn't mean the rules have disappeared. Here's what I think it means. Here's the way that we can put this together that makes sense. And this draws off of a whole lot of other things that the Bible says, and especially in Paul's letters about the law and about grace. And we're going to go into a lot more of those when we get to chapter 7 and chapter 8. But I think what it's talking about here is, is the law is the idea of the law for righteousness. Or another way to put it, in theological terms, would be the covenant of works. This is the idea. You are no longer under the law. You are no longer under this system where the way that you get your eternal life is by perfect obedience to God's rules. That's the system that was set up in the Garden of Eden. They had the one command, you may eat of any tree of the garden, but this one you may not eat of, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the covenant of works, and they could have obeyed it, but they didn't. It killed them. And every single one of us, as we are born in Adam, we're born under the covenant of works. We are born with the command, do this and live. As it's put in Leviticus 15, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's good enough in, in that God's commands are good, and this is true, but the bad news is we are disobedient sinners. And so if you say, well, I'm going to come to God, I'm going to be right with God by obeying him, you've already massively disobeyed him. And you're self-deceived, and you're going to keep on disobeying him, and you say, well, surely nobody's perfect, but that must not be what God means. No, he says, be perfect. He literally says that. And if we don't have perfect obedience, well, all that the law is going to do in eternity for us is judge us and crush us. It's not going to declare us righteous. It's going to declare us crushed. That's the covenant of works that we were all born under. But what God does in Christ is he takes us out of that. In the person of Jesus, who is the only human being who has ever perfectly obeyed, and he did, he fulfilled it, he did it, and then he took our sins on himself and he died for them to give us grace. That's amazing. So when you come to Christ, you are taken out of the covenant of works and you're brought into what we call the covenant of grace. Those are just ways to describe I used to just be under the rules 
And they judged me and they condemned me. But now that I've come to Christ, I am free, I'm forgiven, I have grace in Jesus. That's always been how God has saved people. That's always going to be how God saves people. And believer, it's how God has saved you. You were condemned by God's good and righteous rules because you were not good and righteous. But when he's taken the work of Christ and applied it to you by faith, you've been brought out of that covenant of works. You've been brought into the covenant of grace. You are no longer under law. You are under grace. And that's why, according to verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Because you're no longer in that system where, boy, if I trip up just a little bit, I'm doomed. You're not in that anymore. You're in grace. And as you walk in grace, you have freedom, you have life, and you can walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh because you have grace. Oh, that's good. Before faith came, Galatians 3, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You hear that? From the covenant of works to the covenant of grace, from being under the law to adoption as sons. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You are no longer in a system where your status before God is determined by your law-keeping. You're in a system where your status before God has already been declared to be the status of Christ. You're united to Christ. You are clothed in Christ. And we're no longer living as some kind of performance that God is going to give us points on at the end. We're saying God already gave us the points in Jesus, and now we live out of love and gratitude in the grace that we've been given. Mm. You know what the sting of death is? Sin. And you know what the power of sin is? The law. But, 1 Corinthians 15, 57... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, I love it. Guys, you are no longer, if you believed, you're no longer in the covenant of works. You're in the covenant of grace. God gives you grace. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130, verse 7. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from from doing good to them. Not the covenant, you must do good to me, but the covenant, I will not stop doing good to you. That's grace. That is grace. And Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Guys, are are you going to continue to have sin that you have to defeat? Yes, I know that. We're coming up on chapter 7, where Paul describes what I believe is his ongoing need to kill his sin, his ongoing hatred of his own sin. But here's what he says in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or you might say, this mortal body where sin is still present, who will deliver me? And here's the answer, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. He delivers us. Sin will have no dominion over you. Ah, oh, it's good. So if, if 
if, I mean, the question's about to come up again in verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the answer is obviously no. The answer is obviously no. But it's because this grace is not just forgiving grace. It's transforming grace. So we who believe need to walk in the power and the transformation of God's grace that he gives us. I'll just close with something that Robert Haldane said back in the 1800s, talking about the relationship with God that believers have by this grace. He says, all that is required of them is promised to them. They are in a state of reconciliation with God. They know the Lord. So to those of you who don't believe, who are not united to Christ by faith today, I want to tell you that whatever efforts you have in that state are going to be hopeless. You're still in the covenant of works. If you don't have perfect obedience, you are doomed, and you don't have perfect obedience. So come to Christ. Take your efforts at law-keeping or your efforts at rebellion or whatever you've called it, that boring, uninteresting thing that the world does, and lay them down at the feet of Jesus and trust in him, and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you. And believer, know that he has forgiven you and he will cleanse you and he gives you grace not just to be forgiven but grace to walk and to present yourself alive to God and to present your members as instruments of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, Jesus has died for our sins. I thank you that he has put them away forever. And I thank you that he's risen to give us newness of life. God, we already know as believers, we already know the penalty of sin is gone. Thank you. God, we know and we see here that we don't have to live any longer under the power of sin, the dominion of sin. Jesus is Lord, not sin. Thank you for that. And God, we know that one day that we will be free from the presence of sin when we're no longer in this mortal body. And we look forward to that and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for those who are still lost in their sin today. Maybe they wouldn't describe themselves that way, but that's how it is. I pray that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, convict them concerning righteousness and judgment. Uh, God, show them the way of eternal life in Christ and save them. But God, just help us by your grace to walk according to your statutes, to walk in righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.